0: Welcome to Power Plays, a CoBank knowledge exchange podcast series, an audio program where we connect you with top energy and environmental innovators who share their insights, experience and observations of the market. Hello, I'm Terry Vishwanath, the lead economist for Power, Energy and Water at CoBank. With me is CoBank Regional Vice President Tamara Reynolds. Welcome, Tamara. Hi Terry, it's great to be here. Today on Power Plays, Tamara and I had the opportunity to catch up with Anna Spitzberg. Anna is the director at IHS Market who consults and researches on the industry strategy as it relates to the global power sector. Anna and her
1: team recently wrapped up some pretty thought-provoking work on their outlooks for corporate U.S. renewables procurement. This topic is really important to our electric cooperatives as they increasingly face supply chain competition.
0: Tamara, what I found novel about the IHS analysis is they conducted a pretty deep dive on the regional factors that ultimately influence more or less corporate procurement. I agree. We hope you
1: enjoy our conversation with Anna.
0: Hey Anna, welcome to Power Plays. I wanted to introduce our audience to you and your practice group there at IHS. You know, I know you completed your graduate um, environmental work and worked in investment banking, the federal agencies in D.C. before joining IHS, but I wanted you to kind of tell our audience a little bit about your, you know, about your background, your practice group, and especially as it, as it um, you know, as it relates to corporate procurement in this space.
2: Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, I've, I've kind of ran the gamut in a few different sectors. I I started in finance uh, and then I decided uh, through actually volunteering opportunities, I became very interested in energy and water issues and then went back uh, to school and and then worked for Department of Energy and then worked uh, at Department of State, actually partnering with other countries on power sector reform issues and procurement issues. And so I'm now at IHS Market. And for those that are not familiar with IHS Market, where I global information analytics company. And we we have coverage ranging from energy to financial markets to transport, chemicals, agriculture. So it's really wide scope and deep coverage. And we use this to inform over 50,000 clients. And on the global power and renewable side where I sit now, we conduct detailed demand supply and power price modeling. We assess economic and policy drivers. We track evolution of technology and we do this for 80 countries. And we do it to help utilities, developers, investors, manufacturers and others to really answer questions such as uh, how is power demand shifting? Where and what kind of capacity additions may be procured? Who will be procuring? How will they be compensated? And how are markets adapting and utilities evolving? So I'd say it's a pretty robust village keeping up uh, with everything that is changing in the sector.
0: You know, that's super helpful. And I know we connected. Your practice group did some really great work this past yeah. fall, and um, it was really helpful to me, but and I also think really differentiated from the work that I'm actually seeing in the marketplace. So you really did this great deep dive into U.S. corporate renewable procurement. Yeah. Yep. And you talked a little bit about how disruptive 2020 has been with the pandemic, but very constructive and optimistic about the future. I want you to tell us a little bit about that work.
2: Sure, sure. Uh, Yes, and we were. We probably were more optimistic than, than a lot of others, and I think it's because, you know, COVID caused some delays. It caused some delays in construction, and I think contracting expectations fell short of what Uh, many expected. But when we looked at uh, the corporate renewable segment, we saw a lot of momentum and activity. And we estimate that over seven and a half gigawatts of renewable projects that were installed were driven by corporates in 2020 in the US. And we saw a lot of deals contracted. We saw Facebook, St. Gobain, Google, Verizon, Toyota, Amazon just had that huge announcement that came out Uh, And then to add to all of it, RE100 uh, essentially reported that 60 companies joined its initiative in 2020, committing to 100% renewables. And from what we see in our analysis, about 40% of companies in the U.S. that have 100% renewable targets and are active, their targets are escalating in early to mid-2020s. And that's kind of signaling to us a rush in the short term. And of course, that's very much helped by that desire to take advantage of tax credits before they phase out. So, we see this as a a growing segment. And we don't think, we think COVID wasn't that much of a snag.
1: So, Anna, if we were to consider the last decade of procurement, uh, which was really driven by some of the big names, like you just mentioned Microsoft, Google, Apple, um, companies that really had energy intensive data centers and shareholders that really held them to a higher standard, what strikes you as the evolution that is occurring now? So yeah,
2: you you pointed out a good point. So the companies that you mentioned, so Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. So I'd say the big five tech firms in the last decade accounted for about a third of everything we've seen on the corporate renewable side in the US but their contribution also declined over time and then 2020 hit. And in 2020, those big tech companies, they were more active on average. And I'm sure it was spurred by the fact that there's, there's higher demand Um, as companies are shifting to cloud-based data centers. But I think the other sectors are gonna pick up again for two main reasons. One is that the other sectors have a longer way to go to meet their targets. And two, those big companies, and not just the tech companies, but if you take companies like Walmart, they're looking at their supply chain. They're looking at their scope three emissions and they're putting pressure on others. And it's the reason we see manufacturing is holding a lot of potential. Because if you look at manufacturing, it's it's a high electricity consumption segment. It encompasses companies that have targets, but have a long way to, to meet them. Uh, and for those big tech companies, they are a scope three emitter. And so we, we, have, high, we have high expectations for, for that segment. We also think segments like retail are gonna triple by 2030. And we think telecommunications is gonna see high growth. So the evolution and what we expect is just to see way more diversity in the space.
0: You know, that's terrific. And I, getting back to that, um, you know, that, that fall work, that procurement outlook that, that you put together, you know, you're raising some really good points. You created this great heat map. So I would, I would, you know, tell our, our listeners definitely go out and seek out that work because that heat map was, was great. And it really showed where you think you're going to see sort of an active pickup in corporate procurement, um, the states or regions that are are going to be high concentrations of procurement. I want to look at maybe three to five drivers, you know, those drivers that really to you sort of are standout that would make a region more apt to see heavy procurement.
2: Sure. Well, first off, thank you. We like that map as well. It's very spiffy. Uh, so I think uh, I think the key drivers are market access in terms of regulation, wind and solar prices, and uh, growth in terms of demand. So, If we look historically, the states that are within an organized market, so an RTO jurisdiction, they've shown the most activity by far. And it's because they allow for virtual power purchase agreements, which are essentially financial PPAs that may offset a company's load in a number of facilities. So it still allows the company to contribute to new projects, to have that additionality and to do it at scale, but there's no physical connection between generator and load. And then we have the states that have retail or partial retail choice. And that opens up the possibility of having a direct PPA with a physical connection. And it, even if uh, they're going through someone else, it, it has, they have that option of uh, third-party providers and multiple third-party providers that can offer delivery and balancing services. And then in cases where there's a, a vertical structure with an incumbent utility, then green tariffs are attractive because they allow a corporation to, to contribute to the new renewable projects, uh, to essentially help with funding while going through the utility for the transaction. Uh, and it's essentially the next best thing. So that's, that's the regulation portion. And then of course, there's the resource. So where solar and wind are stronger and a result, the prices are more attractive. And I think if we look at Texas, uh, having an organized market, having retail choice and having low renewable prices, it's really been dominant to date for these reasons. And then if we if we also think about location, so where industrial and commercial de- demand is cited and where it's attractive, that's been a big player as well. So Virginia, for example, is uh, within an RTO, has a green tariff, and has is a national hub for data centers. So it's another another hotspot. And then when we look toward the future, and I think that map is really was meant to point that out, in the future regulated regions with attractive solar resources. And low-cost areas, they're going to feel a lot more pressure from companies that want to contract closer to their load. And we think as a result, there'll be growth there. There'll be growth in the Southeast. There'll be growth in the Northwest. There'll be growth in the desert Southwest, such as Arizona. And so we we think just as there will be diversity on the sector side, we're going to see a lot more diversity on in the, in the geographical side as well.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you noted some of those states that um, would be good places, not only from a market standpoint, but from a corporate um, transition standpoint, you're seeing a lot of businesses move to Arlington, Virginia. You're seeing a ton of of new uh, startup companies, but also companies moving to Texas, and and so you have to wonder if that's part of the business climate uh, that that's driving them there, or you know, this is one more you know aspect that really is important to businesses to look at. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. Yeah, so uh, it does really feel like we have uh, transitioned away from passive electricity consumption to more active consumer controlled power. Um, What is the overall trend that you're seeing in distributed energy resources? Uh, Does it represent maybe a quarter of the development that we see in the US now, um, between now and and say 2025, or what do the numbers really look like for you? Sure. So
2: consumers are increasingly coming center stage. And I'll I'll split my response in two, Uh, one for corporates and then then DER. So for corporates, our expectation uh, are for utility scale. And so our outlook for the US in the next decade for corporate utility scale project, uh, so 2021 to 2030 is 44 gigawatts. And that is our base case. And that accounts for about 20% of our total renewable utility scale outlook. We also have a high case in which company ambitions are accelerated in terms of level and pace. And that is 72 gigawatts. So it's a, it's a decent chunk that companies are contributing to. Then aside from corporate renewable procurement, if we look at distributed energy resources, which we classify as uh, projects below five megawatts, it accounts for about 20% of our total solar outlook. So all in all, these consumers are big players.
0: You know, so that's an interesting point. So those are some big numbers, Anna, if we put those up on the board in terms of what it means. And I think it may alter. So when we think about, you know, that's going to shake up the entire upstream supply chain. And when we think about those suppliers, so traditional suppliers, utilities, cooperatives, you know, that change in resource ownership is going to be important, to how we think about these suppliers. So is their role evolving? You know, one thing I heard, you mentioned the RE100, you know, half of the RE100 has not, you know, they've made commitments, but they have a problem of trying to figure out how to fulfill those commitments. So, you know, how do we actually see the marketplace coming together? What does it mean to our, to our suppliers?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and you're right. RE100, you can have commitments to renewables, and they might be uh, bundled or unbundled. It might be just people uh, might be companies just buying renewable energy credits. So there's there's a big difference, and more companies, of course, feel pressure to to create additionality in new projects, but there's there's a big range, and I think in regards to suppliers and utilities, there is a reason we hear the term energy as a service. Uh, So often, and it is because there's this shift from an asset only mentality. And I, I personally tend to think of hardware as something that can be commoditized. And so differentiating with software and services is very important and will only be more important. And as consumers become more sophisticated and involved, the utilities will adapt. And some, of course, faster than others. And so helping to provide flexibility and balancing services for corporations that are not set to do this, and most are not, as well as helping to manage electric vehicles, distributed renewables and demand response on behalf of customers is something that's on the top of most utilities agendas. I think there's still some questions on how much consumers want to interact, especially once we we move beyond those large corporations. So it may also mean for, for suppliers to provide options while easing how decisions need to be made about power supply, and at the same time not losing the advantage that our advantages that we have of having a robust grid and scale that makes the cost declines that we've seen possible. So I think it is going to be a matter of balancing um, creating flexibility and cre- giving options to consumers while still leveraging our infrastructure. That's that's really going to be key.
0: So Anna, that's that's a really interesting dynamic you, you suggest in terms of the interplay between your supplier and your consumer. Um, but it also maybe means in terms of our planning cycle, it used to be the exclusive domain of your, you know, of your g cooperatives, of your utilities that had these assets, where when we think about resource planning, it was an insulated, you know, insulated act. Now it right. looks like we're going to have more players, stakeholders that have to come to the table if we're going to get this right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're very different opinions and then uh, over how those stakeholders interact. So with with everything that we've talked about, uh, it, it signals a lot more data, it signals a lot more information about consumers. And I think there are going to be a lot of questions about Who's managing that data? Who's accessing that data? Uh, is it third-party providers? How involved are they in this process? Is it the traditional utility? And I think there there are a lot of conversations about this now, and and a lot of uh, folks that are in disagreement. But it, it's something that will need to be uh, worked out because there are just a ton more stakeholders at the table.
1: You know, and and what I think you said earlier about the energy as a service and and the increasing importance of software and services fits really well into the business model for our electric cooperative customers because they've always been really strong at the service aspect and taking into account the fact that they their members are their owners and so that's a really I think that's an easy transition for them relatively speaking uh, in an industry that's um, not really had to think about it that way before
2: yes yeah absolutely.
1: So maybe the last frontier is residential ownership. In California, we are seeing um, aggregation occurring. How widespread would you say that trend is?
2: You know, my colleague Wade and I were actually just speaking about the uh, announcement from Ohm Connect. Uh, which is essentially planning to to create a 550 megawatt virtual power plant by giving consumers in California smart devices that may be controlled for demand response. And we've seen a few of these virtual models. We see them in California. We've seen them in uh, New York and New England, particularly with Sunrun that aggregate rooftop systems and and battery assets. And I think overall, there's a move toward more aggregation and aggregation of non-traditional assets. And I think some of the places that are moving ahead may, may buy time for others. So we were talking about who should have data access, um, how should it be managed. Those things need to be worked out. Pricing models need to be worked out, interoperability between devices. Uh, so I think that will, buy, that will buy some time for others. But I also think the trend may spread a bit more in places that have incentives um, in place on reliability, so in places that face outages such as California, maybe Chesapeake Bay area in Maryland, uh, places where you you just, there are more service issues. And so we might see that, that be a bigger
0: part. That's helpful. You know, and and it's funny, going back to your earlier comments, you know, you talked about how important it is to have the right market structure, to have the right incentives, to have, you know, the right location in terms of renewables. And I think that market structure, what's surprising is there actually seven states that actually you know, can, um, can accommodate uh, community aggregation. But it's really only in California that we've really seen this sort of take off. So market structure, incentive, all of these factors have to be, you know, combined together to, to really work. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit, because I, I really like that research that came out this fall. So I want to talk a little bit about where, you know, what you're looking at, what's the new frontier in terms of your own research, and, you know, what's on your list of, of things to work work on?
2: It's a long list. <laughs> it's a very, very long list. So let me da- narrow it down. Well, I'll start with, with corporates, uh, because corporate renewables, they're prominent in the US. But they're, it, it, the corporate renewable trend is growing globally. And so taking a close look at this segment around the world uh, with my regional counterparts is high on my agenda. Uh, we also spend a lot of time digging into utility strategies, uh, because as you noted in your questions, the role is evolving, and it, it raises a lot of questions. And then the last thing I'll mention is resource valuation. So really going beyond looking at solar and wind costs on a levelized basis and thinking about what is their value to, to the system and how will they be compensated in the future and how will their compensation change in markets uh, based on the penetration change, the penetration mix changing. So, so those I'd say those are the, those are the big ones.
0: Yeah, going back to that incentive, uh, trying to figure out—you know—are are we really paying these players for what they bring to the marketplace? That's that's super helpful.
1: Absolutely. Um, and and one more question before we wrap up. Uh, I think the change in the White House has um, caused a lot of people to wonder what's coming next and what will that look like for renewable adoption. Uh, what do you think it means to have uh, President Biden at the helm?
2: I think it certainly sends a positive signal for renewables Uh, we so we already have not only more states establishing ambitious renewable targets, but we have states without mandates building more renewables purely because of cost declines. Uh, In fact, if we look at the bulk of what is in in the interconnection queue across all the RTOs it's renewables and then we have the element we've been speaking about today, which is companies that are setting renewable targets. And so now having a federal government with a net zero target starts to shift all in the same direction. In regards to what can be done that may spur renewables, if we look at permitting for wind development, if we look at capacity market regulation, R&D spending, climate risk disclosures, and even transmission infrastructure, there is a place for the federal government to get involved and for renewables to get increasing support either directly or indirectly. And then, of course, uh, if the Senate is supportive uh, or the makeup of Senate is conducive to it and there are tax credit extensions, that's going to increase renewable buildup significantly, particularly in the years 2024 to 2029.
0: You know, that's really helpful and it kind of just brings us back to that first point you, you know, landed on, on how, you know, it's really important to have this ecosystem environment, you know, uh, whether it's policy, incentive, um, resource falling costs uh, for the technology, but all kind of combined to really make that, you know, energy transition happen. Um, so, and it's really great to have you here. You know, I want to thank you for your time. You know, always you, you and your team are are really providing some, some, I think, innovative research on this, this, you know, evolving area. So we really thank you for the work you're doing. We'd like to continue to, uh, to see that and, um, you know, really appreciate having you as our guest today.
2: Absolutely. It, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Power Plays, a CoBank Knowledge Exchange Podcast Series.
1: Join us next month when we'll have a brand new edition of PowerPlays.
0: The information provided in this podcast is not intended to be investment, tax, or legal advice and should not be relied upon by listeners for such purposes. The information contained in this podcast has been compiled from what CoBank regards as reliable sources. However, CoBank does not make any representation or warranty regarding the content and disclaims any responsibility for the information materials, third-party opinions, and data included in this podcast. In no event will CoBank be liable for any decision made or actions taken by any person or persons relying on the information contained in this podcast.